Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we are excited to be joined by Mike Franzak. Mike is a postdoc at UPenn's, that is the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House. And he's here today to discuss his new, his awesome, his apocal, his revolutionary <laughs> book, Global Inequality and American Foreign Policy in the 1970s. Thanks for joining us, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks, guys, for having me, and uh, thanks for the very generous introduction, Danny. <laughs> uh, Mike, Anytime. I, I want to say thanks for coming on the show, but I also want to ask you what it's like to be at the uh, institution that gave us uh, Donald Trump as an undergraduate. Uh, is that does that uh, thrill you in any way? Yeah, yeah. You can walk <laughs> on the. They call it the Walk of Shame. Is the memorial bridge where everyone has a brick, you know, who's an alum who's donated. Um, <laughs> Maybe we can cut that out, but uh, I don't know. We've, we've been affiliated with a lot of institutions with a lot of uh, dubious graduates. Not American prestige, though. We're we're no. clean. We're we're no. crystal clean clear. Clean as a whistle. No, clean as a whistle. Smart as a uh, god damn it. Clean as a whistle. Smart as a thistle. All right, Mike. Let's get into it. Let's get down to brass tacks here. En- enough joking around. All um, right. One of the things that I wanted to start with, actually, was the role of the 1970s in U.S. historiography, um, because it's a relatively new phenomenon. In the last 10, 15 years, there's been a turn to the 1970s for a variety of reasons. One, people have written so much about the 60s, there really isn't that much new to say, at least when we're coming to professional history. I'm sure someone will find a new angle on things, but you know, it's an extraordinarily well-covered decade. Um, and two, history has moved on in the 70s, and particularly the advent of neoliberalism now seem like a more important hinge point in history than the 1968, you know, student rebellions and, and what have right. you, um, which, which really did occupy a lot of time. Um, and I'm talking right now specifically about diplomatic historiography. Other, other mm-hmm. fields of American history are, are clearly different. Um, sure. So w- what, why do you think the 1970s has emerged as this new field of study, and, and why do you think it's important? Well, I think two things about the 19th, one thing about the 1970s emerging and then another about why the neo emerged in the last, you know, eight eight years or so, really. Um, Like you said, 10 or 15 years ago, um, some new books, big collections started to come out, uh, reevaluating the 1970s instead of this uh, decade of uh, kind of stagnation. And um, it was seen as, as kind of stolen in this waiting period between the vibrant 60s and then the Reagan revolution in the 80s. But 10 or 15 years ago, there was a reevaluation and um, scholars looked at it from a number of political and economic and cultural lenses. The biggest work was probably done in the area of human rights. There was a, a, a rethinking um, uh, uh, influenced in, in, in a large way by Samuel Moyne, linking human rights to the 1970s in a, a new way, kind of the birth of the modern human rights movement. So that's where the historiography on the 1970s was uh, when I started the project. I, I got to graduate school in 2012, 2013. So everybody was, uh, you know, this was the new stuff. Um, Shock of the Global was the big book with Neil Ferguson and Charles Mayer. But I didn't see anything about North-South relations and the new international economic order. 
I had kind of fallen into it because I was writing about North-South relations at Bretton Woods, the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. And I realized that all of these things that developing countries were um, calling for at Bretton Woods re-emerged in the 1970s um, in this extraordinary moment of, of solidarity uh, across the global South to force a, a new Bretton Woods. So I think the interest in Bretton Woods in the 1970s historiography is, one, it's something that was memory hold with the triumph of neoliberalism. So now that we're revisiting it, we can see its importance at the time. But two, I think the rise of inequality in the United States and the very conscious response to that among a lot of scholars to explore the roots of that. And I think in a lot of ways, the 1970s uh, tell us a lot about how we got to the particular kind of inequality that we have globally and domestically. So what do you think earlier literatures misunderstood or got wrong? And I guess I'm thinking of this relatively well-known Mel Leffler review in the journal Diplomatic History, where he essentially mm-hmm. said that the, the 70s weren't a transformative moment, but rather supercharged or accelerated, I believe, trends and structures that were already there. So basically, do you view the 70s, obviously things changed because things change in history, as more of an accelerant or pushing, or more of a hinge point, to borrow a term? (laughs) Sure, (laughs) right. The 70s, for me, is the end of the 40s. The particular political economy that emerged out of World War II, especially between the United States and Western Europe, the United States encouraged Western European unification. It worked too well. So now they had their own voice on trade that didn't necessarily align with the United States's. Oil, this is the fact that I always try to stress, oil uh, was about um, uh, uh, $2, $3 a barrel for 20 years after World War II or close to 20 years. So it's basically with decolonization in the 60s and the rehabilitation of Western Europe, you have a new global political economy that the old system is unsuited for. So suddenly it's not working for the rich countries because you have stagflation. And it's also spectacularly failing poor countries because they're dealing with in the early 1970s, not just an oil crisis, but a food crisis. So I think the structures that were set up after World War II that retained a lot of the vestiges of colonialism and the economic arrangements that were formed with colonies provided the fuel for this. And intellectually, there's another story about how the, the particular idea of a, of a new international economic order or neo would look. Um, and that's another story, a, a third world intellectual story that's, that's also part of the book. So why don't we turn to that now? I think we should get there by talking about the problem of development as seen from what we today call the global south, what was Mm -hmm. at various times over the 20th century called the backwards peoples, the developing world, or during your Mm -hmm. period of study, the third world. Um, What was the view of development from the intellectuals who were talking about that? Um, and also, I should say, all those terms are obviously mm-hmm. almost always pejorative because they're of they're course. always uh, not almost always they they are pejorative because they're basically fixed in relation to the global north, which is seen as the actor of history. Right. Um, so, so what do you think? Uh, let's talk a little bit about those third world intellectuals that you study and their views of development. Sure. Well, there's kind of two uh, uh, dominant strands of thought after World War II in economic development, or three, I would say. Um, 
One is the Walt Rostow capitalist assisted development. The state's going to help out and, and the World Bank's going to build uh, big infrastructure projects. And, uh, you know, you let the state uh, uh, gradually cut it back and um, really focus on integration and world trade, uh, things like comparative advantage. The other vision is coming out of Latin America primarily. Um, and this is import substituted industrialization that goes back to the 1920s and 30s, uh, when a lot of countries experimented with it. But after World War II, Raul Prevesh, who's an Argentinian economist, uh, was eulogized as Latin America's Keynes due to his influence. And he and other economists in the United Nation provide the intellectual foundations for what an alternative Bretton Woods would look like, how to um, basically restructure the arrange the, the rules of the game instead of just the spoils. Um, so this is a focus on global economic structures. Pravish's argument becomes the terms of trade thesis. It says that over time, uh, commodity producers, largely poor countries exporting commodities, are at a structural disadvantage against rich countries that take those commodities, make things with it, and sell it right back at inflated prices. So this is the intellectual argument behind changing the rules of the system. So uh, something very big happens uh, in 1964, which is when UNCTAD is founded. That's the UN Conference on Trade and Development. And the idea at UNCTAD was to kind of provide an alternative space where developing countries could gather together and come up with a common position, hopefully move negotiations out of the GATT and, and, and the IMF and other uh, uh, arrangements that are dominated by the North and into UNCTAD, which operates on a one country, one vote procedure. So um, Prebish is the first uh, secretary general and contributes through the 1960s to developing um, this, these ideas and how they would challenge it. So, so there's kind of a blueprint for this already in place by 1972, an intellectual one. The Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. This is uh, Luis Echeverria of Mexico is, is really pushing this in 1972. Then something very big happens, which is the world food crisis. This happens, begins before the oil crisis. It was largely the consequence of a bad post-war system, which was Developing countries relying on exports from developed countries, particularly the U.S. under PL 480, Food for Peace, to meet their food needs. Now, when something very bad or unexpected happened, that would create huge problems because people in poor countries spend most of their income on food. So a small rise in food prices is very bad. So instead of helping developing countries grow their own food, the U.S exported its own. There was a domestic benefit for farmers politically, but there is a, a big change in, in 1972, which is when the largest grain deal ever is made. Basically, the U.S. Agriculture Secretary, Earl Butts, uh, maybe a familiar name for his free market views, radically transformed American agriculture. And what he did was eliminated the U.S. agricultural surplus. This is a system that was set in place during the New Deal to pay farmers to keep land fallow and have a commodity credit corporation to support them. 
What he does is wipes out the whole reserve in this huge deal. So it's great for farmers, great for Nixon in the 1972 election. He wins the farm belt handily. But guess what? 1973 happens. You have poor harvest the year before. And then when the oil crisis takes off, prices for a barrel double from October 1973 to January, February 1974, um, the world's in a huge, huge crisis. So we remember this and we still remember this into today as an oil crisis. But for most of the world, a huge part of the world, it was a food crisis first and foremost. So that's kind of the intellectual path of those ideas colliding with the political events. Bend lies in the heart of farming country. The ranches and farms that surround it depend on oil. This oil dealer is making his last delivery of the winter. When he returns to Bend, he will be out of oil. So then it is a, a few um, months after February is when the prices have quadrupled from four to $12 a barrel. And it's symbolically May 1st, International Labor Day, when the group of 77 developing countries introduces the call for a new international economic order. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the oil crisis. And mm -hmm. uh, were there distinctions within the group of 77? Because this is a time when I think you also start to see, at least you know, in, in terms of kind of rhetoric or the way that the developing world or the third world, if you want, is mm -hmm. discussed, you start to see distinctions between developing and non-developing, basically, countries or less developed countries or that, that sort of rhetoric. I'm sort of curious, you know, when this was being pushed, the new international economic order was being pushed, you know, who were the leaders of that movement? And, and sure. you know, did they tend to be the countries that had a lot of resource wealth that could be, you know, easily extracted sure. and kind of turned into something as opposed to, you know, some of the, the maybe less fortunate uh, countries in that group? Sure. So, so OPEC was split between radicals and moderates, as, as the U.S. Uh, uh, defined them, and um, moderates would be Saudi Arabia, and eventually this is the deal that's worked out. Um, but the radicals uh, were the ones who positioned OPEC as the point in the spear of the neo. This is a, a phrase I'm, I'm borrowing from the Algerians. Um, uh, Bouari Boumediene introduced the neo. Uh, resolution. Uh, he was also chair of the non-aligned movement and hosting OPEC's meeting that year. So he was a major, major player within OPEC pushing the NEO. The other major player, and it's again very interesting that these are two non-states and you know, the ones you would think of in, in the Middle East. You have Algeria and uh, Venezuela. So Carlos Andre Perez uh, is, is the leader who does not participate in OPEC's boycott. He's still hit with a tariff by the United States after, but he positions himself as kind of the leader who can speak to both North and South, who can take this opportunity and turn this kind of confrontation into some kind of new cooperation. So he bets big on the NEO. There's also a split between, like you said, within developing countries. Some are starting to get a lot richer than others. Um, the biggest split at this time is between OPEC and the NOPECs. So this is something that the U.S. like to point out ad nauseum. High oil prices hurt developing countries, hurt poor countries that import oil more than it does us. We have oil, we have reserves. Europe was much more vulnerable, which is what animated a lot of the foreign policy response. Um, but there's a split between OPEC and the NOPECs. And the U.S. says, 
how how are they going to hold this together? Kissinger calls it the unholy alliance between the the uh, OPEC countries, which are now flush with cash, have more than they can literally more than they can spend, and oil importing developing countries that face a food and energy crisis. And and to be fair, if if anybody's yes. going to know from unholy, I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, Kissinger would be the guy. Well, Kissinger plays a very interesting role. We can get into to how each administration responded to the neo. But this is a very real concern. And for the first few years of, of negotiations around the NEO, 1975, 76, there's uh, a lot of new funds established by OPEC. At the World Food Conference in 1974, one of the big successes is the International Fund for Agricultural Development. And that was going to be funded 50-50 OPEC and OECD. So that means OPEC would be paying more than its fair share to this fund. Um, so there's promises of support to the developing countries to keep them afloat and keep this coalition going. However, cracks emerge. First, a lot of the loans and programs go to countries that have Islamic governments or large Islamic populations, especially in Africa. So a lot of countries are not getting that aid or they're put farther down on the list. Um, and the bigger thing that happens is debt. And the developing countries, especially the importing ones, become very, very concerned by 1977 about rising debts. This starts to become uh, an issue in the negotiations. You get to 1979-80, they're begging Carter, take this seriously. There might be a generalized debt crisis. Carter says, no way, this is a political issue that they blow out of proportion. And um, then there's a, a massive debt crisis after the interest rate spikes. Mike, why don't we get into the NIEO um, sure. precisely? And, and what exactly was the vision? So you framed this history of development. You framed the initial context. What was the mm -hmm. specific vision of the NIEO? And I guess we should just say it doesn't succeed. So no. maybe we could also have that framework. Was this an effort that was doomed from the start? Is there a counterfactual world where the the, the rules of the international economic order yeah. are actually rewritten? Because I think that's important for us as historians to think about that. I, I think projects of recovery are super important, particularly when we relate them to contemporary projects. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious from a structural level, mm -hmm. was this doomed from the start? Because there's been so much writing on it and I right. think we're, we're, we're able to kind of make that assessment about now. That's correct. That was the consensus when I started the project and what someone senior told me that uh, this was doomed from the start. So there's, you know, nothing really, uh, not much worth writing about it now. The U.S. was going to say no. But but my point is that the, and, and this goes to the point of contingency, the U.S. government took this very seriously. It was no way foreordained um, that this was going to resolve itself. The U.S. is terrified and Kissinger is terrified in particular about Europe splitting the separate deals with OPEC, basically excluding the U.S. from that share. And um, this is coming right after Kissinger's failed year of Europe. The whole kind of structure uh, seems to be uh, falling down at this moment. So when you go back and look at the documents, there's real panic, real concern. And, and the NEO, as it was constructed, it was ambitious. It was righteous. I'll talk in a minute about some of the specific proposals, but it was not expected to be adopted as such. The idea was to use this crisis in the global economy 
as an opportunity to reform the capitalist system. This is something that people got wrong about the neo. This is what the neoliberals in the Ford administration accused the neo of, and, and they were incorrect, of being socialist or of being a worse communist. Now, it's true that most of the governments behind the neo, most third world governments, were some degree of socialist. And, and if you're inheriting a country um, that's been a colony and you're trying to build, that was the de facto ideology. But the idea was to get a better seat at the table in global capitalism. This is why the Soviet Union wants nothing to do with it. This is why China tries and fails to get involved in it, because it's about reconfiguring the global capitalist order to better meet the needs and realities of a world that now has over 100 countries instead of 44 at Bretton Woods when this was being decided and really only two mattered. So uh, there is a large amount of contingency involved. And what I find is that the U.S. government was not able to change the NEO. Each, each administration tried something different. It had to respond to this. Each administration tried something different. Kissinger tries to divide it. Carter tries to divert it toward uh, poverty and basic needs. And Reagan tries to talk it out. But every administration had to respond to it. And American politics responded to it. So there were domestic effects as well as foreign policy effects. So I'm happy to go through kind of each administration, what were the big debates and players. Before we do that, you know, I had that piece with Logaval mm -hmm. a couple of years ago about emphasizing U.S. power as really the central fact of post-45 IR. How do you think your work fits into that? Sure. Well, uh, I think it is in line with what you and Logaval were calling for more of in the piece. I, I think that I, I remember when, when we, I read an early draft of that and um, the final draft was, was uh, a little bit different. Um, but I, I find myself agreeing with, with the argument of the piece more and more um, as time goes on. And I think what the book does is show that in the 1970s, there was an opportunity for America to devolve some of its responsibility, to move away from primacy, and it instead doubled down. Um, and now we see the effects of that today. If the investments that were being called for in the early 1970s and the mid-1970s that were agreed to at the World Food Conference in 1974, this big dramatic north-south moment, then the current global food situation would look very different. Countries would not be you know, waiting on grain from Africa. They could have uh, regional and local economies of scale that would build up. Um, there was a really, this is a, a practice in U.S. food policy that just always amazed me. And it was only ended in 2018, in the 2018 Farm Bill, which was monetization of U.S. food aid. Only the U.S. did this. Europe ended it a long time ago, which was all U.S. food aid had to go out on U.S. ships, pass through U.S. hands, you know, take three months to get there on a big steamer. Now, that doesn't do a lot when people are starving right now. Long ago, other countries shifted to cash vouchers to build up local economies and encourage local food production. Uh, we didn't. So the result has not been good for developing countries, but it's also not been good for Americans. And I think for American farmers in this instance, when they were encouraged to go 
like developing countries, heavily into debt to afford um, uh, these new technologies and to expand, 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 and and doing so in ever smaller margins. It's been good for the result has been good for freedom. Okay, we won the Cold War. We did not allow the world to go communist. No, I don't know. I'm just just spitballing here. Uh, <laughs> it's American prestige. We're pro, uh, you know, monetization of uh, of the food. Uh, oh, industry. obviously, that's that's how we yeah. make most of our money. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, we, we have contracts. We don't talk about it. But Here's there. the other thing that just connects directly to today. So, um, in 1972, we had a world food crisis, largely because the United States liquidated its grain stockpile in this deal with the Soviet Union. It was called the Great Grain Robbery. So then when the shortage ha, ha, hits, ha. bad weather, we have nothing to release to markets. All right. Master stroke of detente. You know, this was always <laughs> seen as master stroke. Oh, wow. Nixon won the election. This is great. for. Here's the, I mean, the, the effects around the world were disastrous. Now, fast forward to 2006, 2007. You know, I remember that I was 16, filling up my car with $100 a, a barrel. That was the first time anything like in the global economy kind of registered to me. So oil is $100 a barrel then, and, and you know that's all we're talking about in the U.S. In the global south, uh, it was another food crisis of the magnitude of the early 70s. And economists found, and the two economists, I'm going to cite Jeffrey Sachs and Jagdish Bhagwati, our pro-globalization mainstream people, said the decisive factor was the U.S. removing its grain stockpile and production to use as biofuels. So instead of sending the food to the Soviet Union, which was not experiencing a grain shortage, it was experiencing a political stagnation and needed to keep feeding its people meat to, to keep things, things moving. Um, you need that grain to feed the pigs and so on. This time, the food, the American surplus, was burnt up in uh, biofuel and uh, flex, those flex fuel SUVs, uh, you remember, in E85. They're still doing it. So that's another way uh, American primacy initiated the NEO, um, provided a, a lot of justification, and, and OPEC leaders used this for the oil price spikes. And uh, it, it hasn't changed. It's just kind of evolved. So why don't we now just literally talk about how the administrations responded to this? So you gestured toward a little bit right now with Nixon, but yes. what is Nixon's generally pointed to and Nixon and Kissinger are are generally pointed to it as as indicating a a new moment in the history of U.S. foreign policy, and I broadly agree with that. I, I do mm-hmm. think that they were much less focused on the third world as a principle, mm-hmm. at least when it comes to to military conflict. But they were very much committed to American domination and primacy. Mm-hmm. So, how does this? grand third world project interact with Nixon and Kissinger's desire to focus far more on great power politics. Yeah, this this throws everybody into crisis mode and I'll go through the different camps. So Kissinger he's just had like three banner years of of globe trotting diplomacy and then the oil crisis and NEO, which he correctly links, um, it wasn't hard to make that conclusion because the supporters did really terrify him um, because Europe is way more dependent on foreign oil and as it still is today with the ga- natural gas uh, in Russia. Um, it's still dependent, more dependent uh, than the U.S. Um, so this is the lowest point in the transatlantic alliance in decades, according to Kissinger. So he's very scared about this. And this initiates a kind of conversion 
of sorts of Henry Kissinger, where he becomes very interested in international economics, not for its own sake, but as a political tool. He, su he suddenly sees the value of uh, uh, presenting a different narrative to the world and to the South for U.S. leadership going forward. Um, this is the, the debate that's, being, that's taking place in foreign affairs at the time. What is the U.S.'s role in the world is confused. This is even before, you know, Vietnam's syndrome was coined. The course which our country chooses in the world today has never been of greater significance for ourselves as a nation and for all mankind. So the Neo splits the Ford administration, we're now in the Ford administration, into three camps. First is Henry Kissinger, um, the kind of realist camp, and, and this is where Kissinger really takes over in a way that I don't think anyone else ever has, the Agriculture Department and the Treasury Department in service of his strategy, which is to give limited concessions on some significant things uh, in the NIO, um, uh, chief of all the, the common fund for commodities, which would help regulate global commodity prices. Um, He's willing to give in on some key things in exchange for the South backing down on the big stuff and ending the oil crisis. So he thinks we, he says this many times, we cannot just go out there and preach sermons. If we just preach the virtues of the free market, they're going to kill us. Uh, we'll be isolated. Germany will never stick with us. France will never stick with us. So keeping the unity of the North is his central concern here. And in that way, kind of managing American hegemony into a new era where it's more multipolar. This infuriates the neoliberals in the administration. So this is William Simon, who's Treasury Secretary. Uh, William Seidman, uh, who is, uh, comes from Grand Rapids, he's an accountant there, um, uh, but a, a very smart and free market thinking guy. And uh, Alan Greenspan, who's head of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors. All of them unite against Kissinger, saying that Kissinger is going out there endorsing basically global market socialism. This is killing what we're trying to do at home. So at the same time, they're trying to institute their own free market reforms in the global economy. And they say Kissinger's out there uh, uh, selling out um, the free market at home and abroad. If we don't speak up, if America doesn't speak up for free market values around the world, then who will? This is, this is a quote, a direct quote. So uh, they try everything they can to kind of block the Kissinger uh, conciliation strategy, and they make an alliance with Earl Butts, who famously told farmers to go big or get out um, and plant corn and soybeans fence row to fence row. He was a foe of the family farm. He had worked for Ezra Taft Benson, who was Eisenhower's agriculture secretary and very uh, free market guy. And he really wanted to revolutionize the USDA, and he did. And uh, his move, as I mentioned, the Great Grain Robbery, ends up colliding with foreign policy and with Kissinger's objectives. So one of the, the things I highlight in my book um, is the World Food Conference of 1974, where Kissinger comes and delivers this big speech, in 10 years, no child will go hungry, he lists all the things that the U.S. is going to do, and he bashes OPEC for, for raising oil prices. Then he leaves. Earl Butts goes up the next day and refutes everything, delivers a sermon about free market values and, and so on, you know, in the middle of this food crisis. So that's the, the conflict in the Ford administration is Kissinger versus the neoliberals. 
And then it becomes Kissinger versus the neoconservatives. And this is where Daniel Patrick Moynihan comes in. So neoconservatives, early neoconservatives. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so neoconservatives are really animated by the neo. They make in Commentary magazine uh, direct analogies between third world governments demanding uh, uh, reparations and calling the system evil. They make direct comparisons to the new left on college campuses. And in this analogy, the U.S. government, and, Hen- and Henry Kissinger in particular, is the weak need college administrator who's coddling the students instead of telling them to behave. So Moynihan writes this barn burner of an essay in Commentary Magazine. It gets the attention of Kissinger. They bring him on board and say, we got to do something. We have to come up with a response. So Kissinger's defeated, kind of gotten past the the first neoliberals, but now he's got to deal with Moynihan. And he and Moynihan have this eight-month clash back and forth, sniping, Basically, Moynihan takes on the third world over what it calls its hypocrisy. It says, you, you, uh, uh, you're human rights abusers, you know, denouncing us in one breath and demanding money in the next. If you think the U.S.-led order is so bad, find it's equal. That's, that's one of his lines. Um, so Kissinger now has to deal with this bombastic uh, attitude, from, and it's coming in the press, too, from people like Irving Kristol in the Wall Street Journal, are writing, uh, you know, in praise of Moynihan and um, in condemnation of of the Kissinger approach, um, which is starting to look like what the uh, liberal internationalists were doing. Hey everyone, it's Jake here, just plugging our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. There you can sign up for the free list or become a paid subscriber, where you'll get an extra full episode plus a mini episode every week. Plus, you can check out all our archives, reading lists, series, etc. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. You're someone who studied Kissinger an incredible amount, and Kissinger has mm-hmm. a particular place in the leftist imagination. Yes. Can we talk about that for a second? What do you think? Because Kissinger is a very complex figure. I remember my friend yes. Matt Chrisman posted something along the lines of obviously he was being Twittery, but he's like Kissinger is not even in the top not 10. Not even the top worst, 10, yeah. Yeah, foreign policy <laughs> makers of all time. But what, what's your take as someone who like went in the Kissinger files and didn't yeah. focus on the bombing of Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. which is so obviously a moral, horrific war crime? Right. You know, there's really nothing to really discuss there. But what are your thoughts on, on Kissinger? Yes. I guess um, black box his horrible war crime, which is not really right. possible. You know, this is the problem that the contradictions of, of of making any judgments along these lines, and, and we should really underline that brutality. But um, I guess if we if we could just acknowledge that and and then mm-hmm. continue to have a discussion anyway. Yeah, it's a great question, and I've I've thought um, for years how to thread this needle, so to speak, and um, again without minimizing any of the horrific things that I acknowledge. You know, he has done. I'm not trying to rehabilitate Henry Kissinger's reputation. Not that he needs my help. A lot of institutions have already done it for him. <laughs> but what I suggest in the book is that Kissinger's lack of a firm ideology for in the sense for economics and for human rights. These two things that neoliberals have a very strong ideology about and neoconservatives are developing a very strong ideology about, so are liberals. And I suggest that his disinterest in talking about human rights and the Western idiom of political and civil rights actually put him at an advantage when negotiating in the South with the South, because he was willing to put aside those issues, and so were they, 
to discuss concrete uh, uh, economic plans. So there were some things that succeeded, like the International Fund for Agricultural Development, a lot that didn't. I'm also very critical of Kissinger in the book and his false promises. Kissinger would overpromise, Carter would underpromise, neither would get what they asked for. So it's kind of, you know, are you going to fail big or fail low? But w- w- what I suggest really, as I said, that um, this lack of uh, uh, insistence on injecting morality into foreign policy and politics was an advantage when you are negotiating with the group of 77 developing countries uh, called the G77 because in 1964, when UNCTAD was formed, that's how many there were. By the NEO, you have 30 more countries. It's up to 131, I think, today. Um, And that's because of decolonization. So Kissinger was able to go to Africa. He intended UNCTAD uh, uh, 1976 in Nairobi and and gave this speech um, and was able to buy some time for the U.S. and the West. He also was uh, very instrumental in the, uh, as I found, in the creation of the G6 and G7 summits, which were, I think, misunderstood in the sense that they were really pivotal for not just the uh, West-West relations um, and shoring up the global economy, but North-South. The whole agendas are dominated, or most of the agendas of those first two in 1975 and six are dominated by that. And it's Kissinger who's pushing back against Greenspan and Simon, who are saying, you need deflation in the West. So there's, there's uh, Kissinger, the economic diplomat, is, is kind of an interesting animal. Um, and, and again, that doesn't excuse any of his other human rights policies, and, and I'm very critical of, of a lot of other aspects. But what it tells me, what it shows me, and this is when I think of global climate negotiations today, where I'm working now, is that countries with very different political systems can get together to negotiate things in a common interest and discreetly from other major burning issues. Thanks, Mike. That's really interesting. Why don't we turn to the liberal internationalists who populated the Carter administration? Yeah, this is this is a great bunch, brainy bunch, the World Order Liberals. Um, two organizations are particularly important for Carter. Uh, one is the Trilateral Commission. And this was another hard needle to thread because of, you know, the conspiracy theorists and, and things around the, the Trilateral Commission. But what they did is gave Jimmy Carter his foreign policy education, 100%. Um, Brzezinski was his tutor, and the the feeling was mutual. Brzezinski felt that, and, and Carter said as much. They also supply t- 20 to 30 people for the administration, so many, many of the high posts in the State Department, especially in economic affairs, are in the NSC, are going to people from the Trilateral Commission who've been working on these reports on uh, what to do about what they call the explosion in North-South relations. This is another forgotten aspect of the Trilateral Commission is that the first eight of their 12 reports, they would write these travel influential trialogue reports. The first eight dealt with North-South relations. So they were very interested in the NEO. um, And their idea was, here's how we can exhibit make some minor changes, exhibit some new flexibility in the system to meet developing countries' demands while preserving the integrity of the American-led post-war order. And the second organization is lesser known called the Overseas Development Council. And this supplied what 
for Carter was going to be the magic bullet or the silver bullet for the NEO. And that's basic human needs. This is the idea that development assistance, instead of doing these big modernization projects that I mentioned before, like building dams, uh, instead of this focus on GDP, which you know pretty much everyone was saying the money's not getting down to the poorest in those countries, instead of doing that, instead of giving money to corrupt governments, we're going to make sure that money goes to very specific things poverty related. So if this sounds familiar, the focus on health, on education, uh, gender comes a little bit later, health, education, um, uh, uh, clean water, other uh, poverty indicators, the SDGs. I mean, these, this is kind of where this, this comes out of. There's parallel thinking going on in the World Bank at this time, and there's this thinking and these two groups kind of form the nucleus of the uh, Carter administration's foreign policy response to the NEO. So these are the world order liberals. The idea was we're going to uh, pull some levers here, pull some levers there, and uh, restructure American power for a multipolar world. Not dissimilar from how Kissinger was thinking. And they kind of struggled to distinguish themselves from him as um, some ODC staffers later said um, in the administration. Their idea is, instead of dividing the South, trying to buy off the NOPECs with this or that thing, or buy off OPEC with this or that thing, which Kissinger is doing, why don't we offer them something better, more meaningful? And that's anti-poverty aid. So they said, you're not going to get your new institutions that you're calling for. You're not going to get the same voting power, you know, one country, one vote, and the institutions that matter. You can have that in, in um, uh, the General Assembly where you can make resolutions, but we're not going to take this to economic policy. But we're going to give you anti-poverty aid. And the divide is very, very clear. It's structure versus agency. It's a very familiar one. Should the focus be on poverty between countries or poverty within? Um, most would say both. But by that time, by the mid to late Carter administration, both sides were locked in a pretty inflexible, inflexible positions. So um, the G77 was saying, we want these institutions. We want a new uh, body for debt relief, something in addition to the Paris Club. You know, we should be at the table, too. And Secretary of State Vance is saying, no, 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 it's basic needs or nothing. And it's presented as very generous, and, and Carter is very sincere about it. But the president of Venezuela puts it brilliantly to Carter in a, in a tense uh, meeting uh, over this exact issue. And he says, you know, sometimes we look to the United States as, as an obstacle to a solution um, instead of the leader. And what you have to understand, Mr. President, is that Poverty is a symptom, it's not a cause. And that exactly encapsulates the argument that the South was saying, it's not enough just to redistribute some of the spoils. You have to change the rules of the game, rules that were written before many of these countries existed, for, before they were independent countries, or before they had uh, uh, equal or respected power in the international system. So how is the Global South responding to this over the course of the 70s? They're not buying it. They correctly suspect that this is a, a kind of a feint to avoid structural discussions. But there are some really close moments. And one that I've gone back to a lot, because it's, it's directly applicable to what's going on um, in global climate negotiations, is 
1979 UN Conference on Science and Technology for Development. So long, boring title, Unkstead, but a very important conference. This is about technology transfer, um, an extremely important issue for the South, part of the NEO, um, something that had been called for since Bretton Woods by developing countries. Um, so this to the U.S., to Carter, he's thinking this is great. You know, Carter's got a scientific bent. He's got Harold Brown from Caltech as his defense secretary. It's point four of the Truman plan, and Truman's his favorite president. Um, it's the origin of American international assistance in their minds is, is, is uh, technology transfer. Um, so Carter is really enthusiastic. Uh, uh, the basic needs idea kind of goes along with the small is beautiful movement. Carter has E.F. Schumacher to the White House. So this fits with Carter's domestic priorities and senses, but it's something that they place a pretty high priority on. So what happens at the negotiations is the U.S. comes with um, some pretty decent proposals Every time the leader of the U.S. delegations is Theodore Hesburgh, who is president of Notre Dame University, progressive president there, brought them into the 19th century. I'm joking. So uh, uh, Hesburgh um, is really trying to make this work with the South. It's got all of the ODC people who came up with the idea of let's do basic needs and structural reform. The end result is the U.S. spends more on its lodging for this conference, this mega conference in Vienna than it does on any initiatives. And that's because the U.S. really refused to kind of give an inch on control over any new institutions that it would be giving money to. Um, so the end result is the G77 gets a voice with no money and a fund with no voice. So it kind of has the worst of both worlds. It's locked out of, uh, uh, it has a new fund, but it can't, it's not going to get any money. And the new fund that's set up, they don't have a voice in. So it's back to where it started. Uh, Mike, I'm curious as to whether or to what extent the revolution in Iran may have caused the Carter administration to sit up and take notice or rethink things at mm -hmm. all. I mean, this was a uh, this took a reliable U.S. ally with, you know, that was a major contributor to the global oil market uh, mm -hmm. out of that category, put it immediately in the category of kind of global revolutionary states. The slogan for a while was neither East nor West, only Islamic Republic. And uh, there were ties with the IRA, with the Sandinistas, with the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. So this is, I mean, this has a big foreign policy ramifications yeah. fortunately for us of course saddam hussein came riding in on a white horse uh, and invaded iran and stifled mm -hmm. all of this stuff before it could really get going um but at the time did did that did did the revolution shake up the carter administration's foreign policy thinking in any way yeah 1979 was you know uh, a big year for a lot of crises so um this is kind of when carter's strategy really all falls apart um, so while Unkstead is happening, you know, you have the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. You have the Iran hostage crisis. There is another, uh, uh, there, of course, there's Nicaragua happening. Carter's like, what am I going to do about this? Is His whole human rights strategy is really focused on Latin America. And that's tied to his north-south or basic needs strategy because he says basic needs are human rights. The American people want the actions of their government, our government both to reduce human suffering 
and to increase human freedom. This is actually really important, but this is his idea is I'm going to link my new uh, favorite thing, human rights, which everybody loves, to uh, development aid, to basic needs aid. Um, so it was a recognition that there's political and civil rights, but also economic and social rights. So Carter thinks this is what the South really wants. This is what Latin America is going to want. So I think more than just putting aside Iran, uh, uh, the events in Nicaragua and, and then in, I think it was Guyana, um, there was something that Carter was advised to stay out of, the New Jewel movement, maybe. So his, Latin America is also um, uh, really turning against uh, the, the momentum, any momentum that he had, had built up. By 1980, there's, there's no uh, appetite left in the administration. And uh, one of the ODC people say, I mean, very clearly in a long disappointed memo. There's nothing left to do but admit defeat. We are in the same position we were with Kissinger. We did what he did. We bought time. Um, so they really tried a tremendous amount of things, um, but they were unwilling to consider the redistribution of power within the global system. Um, and that was extremely important, um, a, a sine qua non, and, and you know, in anything, both sides have to give. The G77 was willing to give on a number of things and did. Um, there were mistakes it made, focusing on the common fund uh, uh, too long um, when they should have been focusing on the growing debt. So that came a little bit later. But the, the pivotal event then is, is yeah, 1979 and uh, another oil spike, um, inflation or, or Volcker has just been appointed to, and that is the real end of, of the NEO. So to get to the Reagan administration now, I, I expected to, to go in and see, you know, absolutely not. We have no, the only response to have to, we have to this is no, use the free market. And that was part of it. But what I found out is Reagan couldn't just say no. The idea was uh, a political pressure from Europe. This is still very popular. Um, the idea in Europe of uh, a, a new economic relationship with the third world. The Brandt Commission uh, had just released its uh, uh, report, which you know seems totally ineffective, and we forget today. But in 1980, the Brandt Commission uh, North-South: A Program for Survival was a, a massive hit in uh, the UK and Europe. Uh, Margaret Thatcher's government had to respond to it positively and say, you know, there's lots of great ideas in this, and it was basically global Keynesianism. So there's pressure. Um, there's real pressure. There's pressure from uh, Trudeau on this issue, who is uh, very sympathetic to the third world, notably uh, sympathetic, and um, wants to revive the North-South dialogue. So it's not dead yet. This, this, the push for a neo, it's all a negotiation. But how it's going to end, when this so-called North-South dialogue is going to end, no one's sure. Um, there's a moment uh, that I was told by uh, a member of the uh, Reagan administration when uh, they're debating what Reagan is going to come up with for the uh, 1981 North-South Summit at Cancun. This is kind of the final moment um, in the North-South dialogue. And a dozen or so uh, world leaders from North, North and South, I think a little more than a dozen, maybe 20 from North and South meet in Cancun, Mexico, October 1981, to uh, try to revive the North-South dialogue. And uh, Thatcher 
persuades Reagan to attend. She says, this is important that we go. That's how Thatcher remembered it in her memoirs. I heard it differently. Actually, the pressure was, uh, like I said, from uh, outside, including Trudeau, but also from inside. And I was told by a member of the Reagan administration that there was this moment. It was it was Gene Kirkpatrick, who also ascended to the position of U.S. ambassador to the U.N. on the basis of a commentary article like Moynihan. So that's incredible. But it was uh, uh, Gene Kirkpatrick who convinced the who convinced Reagan that he had to go to these summits and say something substantial. So Reagan goes to the summit. His advisors tell him to say some other things. He says what he wants uh, in some cases, which is where the magic of the marketplace line comes from. His advisors said, don't say that to the developing countries. He did, whatever. Um, and when they get back from the North-South Summit, this is late 1981, Treasury, you know, hard, hard-ass Treasury uh, comes up with a memo and says, this isn't going away. We still have to come up with something. So what they come up with is Again, it's, it's just a more market-friendly version of what Carter's offering. So it's really interesting. Uh, they're kind of putting together this, this um, just weaker package that they're hoping to stall it out. And, and how it actually ends is a year after the North-South Summit, October 1982. Again, Mexico. Uh, Mexico's finance minister announces it can no longer service its debts. The country uh, is going to default. Fears spread across Latin America. It also touches off in Africa and parts of East Asia. And uh, the debt crisis of the 1980s kicks off, the lost decade of development. Mexico's finance minister says we can no longer service our debts to the IMF. And it spreads uh, regionally. Um, it spreads to Africa. It spreads to parts of East Asia. Africa has, has uh, zero growth in this decade. Latin America has virtually zero growth in this decade. No, so that's why it's known as the lost decade of development. Now, how did that happen? This happened going back to the beginning of things, um, because when the first oil crisis happened, oil goes from $3 a barrel to 12. Um, OPEC members, as I mentioned, had literally more money than they could spend. Uh, some of that was uh, invested wisely. Some of it, a lot of it was not. Some of it was sent to uh, developing countries to keep the neo-coalition alive. Um, uh, but, uh, what happens is this money is routed through Paris, London, New York banks who then loan out. These are petrodollars, the famous petrodollars. So these petrodollars are lent to countries in Latin America and Africa and Asia at low rates, earning big fees for the banks and giving OPEC some return on their investments. Now, this comes to a screeching halt when interest rates uh, go up to 20% abruptly in a move by uh, uh, Paul Volcker, Jimmy Carter's uh, chair, Federal Reserve Chair. Um, between 1979, 1980, 1981, the U.S. is in a recession. In 1982, the debt crisis kicks off. So um, it's a very scary thing if you look at what's going on today, where we're uh, northern central banks, the, the Fed and the ECB are are uh, raising rates to kind of induce a, a small recession is the goal, uh, at the same time that developing countries have an astonishing amount of debt as much at levels that they haven't seen since this moment in the early 1980s. 
so uh, really the nail in the coffin of the NEO was, was uh, Paul Volcker's interest rate spike. I think at that that's a good place to to stop, um, but I am sure we will have you back to discuss uh, these topics in more detail uh, in in future episodes. And I, in fact, I know we're going to have you back talking about climate change uh, in the not too distant future. So, Mike Franzak, uh, University of Pennsylvania. The book again is Global Inequality and American Foreign Policy in the 1970s. Thank you so much uh, for being on the program. This was great. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Danny. It's my pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah.